0: book of Ecclesiastes, a series in which we've entitled Meaningless, and uh, we've been going, this is message number eight in a series that we've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and as you turn to Ecclesiastes, let me apologize to this side right here, over here, this side of the congregation I need to apologize to. I talked to Miss Mary Olszak last week, and she said, hey, I appreciate your preaching, but I have one major element, one major uh, 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 form of, or por- portion of feedback I'd like to give you. You preach to this side, not to this side. And I started thinking about it, and she's right. I'm always looking in this direction here, and I come, and when I walk, I walk on this side. And I said, well, it's really because this side needs it more than that side. And so tonight, I'm really going to try to preach to this side of the auditorium. You guys are in for it tonight. So Ecclesiastes chapter number 5. If you'll read with me, we'll read uh, just verse 1 and 2 as we get started, and we're going to cover all of Ecclesiastes 5 tonight, but again, uh, kind of our habit is to just kind of get our mind in the scripture before we cover the entirety of the scripture and the rest of the message. And so verse 1 and verse 2 it says, "Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil." Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Man, that's some powerful scripture right there. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but just as we read, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but really, uh, just as, within the first two verses, there's a lot of wisdom that could be gleaned just from the first two verses, but we're going to cover all of it tonight. And so tonight, in light of our text, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd like to talk to you about this subject, and you'll know what, why I'm, I'm titling this uh, tonight in this way here in just a moment, but I'd like to talk to you about this, stolen valor. All right? Stolen valor. Valor. Let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Lord, I pray that You'd be with me in a very serious way, and that You'd help me. And uh, as I begin to uh, expound upon the Scriptures, Lord, and, and the notes that You've given me this week, and what You've been working on my heart in regards to this text, Lord, I pray that I would clearly and articulately uh, uh, share tonight what Your uh, Your message is for these people. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of that. I wouldn't say anything You don't want me to say, but also that I wouldn't say uh, that I would say everything that You do want me to say. Lord, I pray. That we'd meet tonight with you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you for reading with me. There's a growing problem in America today that many of us have probably seen or heard of if we've been paying any attention to the news. Military veterans and active duty servicemen and women are being impersonated by civilians who have never served in our nation's armed forces. In December of 2013, President Barack Obama signed into law the Stolen Valor Act which made it illegal to impersonate in any form someone who is either a veteran or who currently serves in active military. In March of the following year, Jonathan Palmer, the father of a highly decorated army ranger who had been killed in Afghanistan, grew very suspicious of a man wearing military fatigues in line at his local Starbucks. As he observed the man, he noticed that certain patches were out of order and that the man was wearing the wrong colored boots with his fatigues. His suspicions led him to casually confront the man and ask him some simple questions about his service. It didn't take long for Mr. Palmer to realize that this man had never served a day in the military and that his suspicions were justified. He then proceeded to call the police and upon arrival and after several minutes of interrogation, the man was arrest, or excuse me put in handcuffs and arrested. Uh, After a brief investigation, they discovered that the man had been impersonating a deceased marine who had been killed in active duty. When asked why he would commit such a heinous crime, the man's response was this. I liked how people treated me when I wore the uniform. It helped me get discounts, and I was also in the process of applying for financial aid. Now, how many red-blooded patriot Americans think that that's absolutely disgusting? And despicable that someone would take upon themselves honor and and uh, uh, honor and recognition and rank that was not achieved by themselves but achieved by somebody else uh, since it came into effect the act of uh, the excuse me the bill that um, President Obama pa- uh, passed the stolen valor act of 2013 over 200 arrests have been made as in 200 people have been prosecuted for acts of stolen valor now again how many of us would agree that uh, it's ultimately un-American and has to be one of the worst displays of dishonesty that one can show. I mean, how low do you have to be? Uh, Seriously, think about it. How low do you have to be and self-deluded do you have to be to take upon yourself valor and honor that you did not earn? something that doesn't belong to you, just kind of makes you want to spit, and and no doubt none of us would be guilty of doing that. If any of us saw it, we'd take action, would we not? Uh, You don't impose that kind of honor and that kind of valor that you did not receive yourself. I couldn't help, and I was reading this and thinking of some of our servicemen and women who are in here and gave of their lives to serve our country, and some who are not in here because they actually did give their lives, and the idea that someone, a civilian who's never served in the military, would take upon themselves the valor earned by somebody else it just makes you mad enough that you want to spit with that in mind though could I ask this question how many of us have ever been guilty of stealing valor that only belongs to a mighty and a righteous God how many of us have ever been guilty uh, I believe it's equally as appalling to take upon ourselves rank and honor that belongs only to a holy and a perfect God uh, he's saying, now, hold on Lamar, I've never been guilty of stealing God's valor, I've never been, I would never be mentioned amongst me to take away the honor and glory from my Savior. Uh, something that's very interesting to note about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the bill that Obama passed in 2013 was the magnitude and the level that they would go in saying what you can and you cannot do as a civilian. It's a very detailed bill. I'd encourage you to look at it. It's a very detailed bill. And there's a lot of things that you are allowed to do and you're not allowed to do as a civilian as a result of these people that would come along and steal the valor from our servicemen and servicewomen. Uh, over 200 calls are made at, uh, to report stolen valor every single month. Now again, only 200 arrests have been made and prosecuted, but over 200 people every single month are reported in in suspicion of acts of stolen valor. But what was interesting to note was that most of the occurrences were inadvertent. They were unintentional. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't meant to be an act of stolen valor And again, if you look into it It's very interesting to look at what you're allowed to do And not allowed to do You're not allowed to wear certain boots thing that not res- wear uh, fatigues or uniforms Or patches or lapels Or hats or gloves Or anything that resembles an official, uh, officially issued uh, uniform That's been issued to those in our active military And so it's kind of interesting to think about it Even if it's inadvertent, guilty is guilty And you still can't do it you're still not supposed to do it. I, I thought to prove my point tonight, uh, I went over to the thrift store and I, I'm too much of a cheapo because it was 20 bucks, but every time I go to the thrift store, I find uh, uniforms from veterans, I find hats and lapels, and uh, I found this one particular hat that said Vietnam veteran on it, and I started to buy it and show all of you guys this evening, but then I'd be guilty of stolen valor, so I didn't want to do that tonight. But it's very easy to come into contact with some of those materials that don't belong to you because they've been issued uh, uh, for those who serve in our active military. And so even though it's inadvertent, guilty is guilty. They're very specific about what they would require and very specific about what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do as civilians. And so with that in mind, again, I'll ask the question, have we ever been guilty of stealing honor and glory and valor belonging only to a holy and a perfect God in any way, shape or form? I think all of us would admit that we've been guilty from time time or two, whether intentionally or inadvertently stealing the glory from God. What does it look like to reverse roles with God and steal his valor? In Ecclesiastes chapter number 5, Solomon gives us a vivid picture of a worshiper that's ascending to go and worship God in the temple. And it says in verse number 1, keep thy foot is the admonishment that he gives him. And he's not talking about watching his step physically. He's saying, hey, you better have the right perspective whenever you go into the temple to worship God. You ought to have the right perspective, and he even goes as far as to say what the right perspective is. God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. That's the perspective that he gives this worshiper that's ascending uh, into the temple. Hey, remember, make sure you have the right perspective. Make sure you keep your foot. Remember, God is in heaven, and you are on the earth. That ought to be your perspective. Don't reverse roles with God. In other words, don't be guilty of stealing God's valor. In our text tonight, I'd like us to look at a few things, and I'd like us to look at what it looks like in the life of a Christian when we reverse roles with God, according to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'll go over them very quickly. Number one, rituals over reverence. If you're taking notes tonight, rituals rituals over reverence. Look at verse number one again. It says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, uh, be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou art upon the earth, Therefore let thy words be few by multitude. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. Again, Solomon paints this picture of a worshiper that's going to the temple to worship God. And as they would make their way up this temple stairs, some 70 stairs or 70 steps that would lead to the southern entrance, they'd enter into the southern entrance. And as they'd make their ascent, there was a few things that they'd do and and a few things that would take place before they'd enter into the temple. Number one, you want to make sure that you're clean physically. They would make sure that they were clean physically. They wouldn't go, uh, uh, you know, on... How many of you take baths on Saturday night? Once a week, right? No. Uh, you, you would make sure that whenever you're going into the temple to worship God, it was on bath day, okay? They'd make sure that they were clean physically. They'd also make sure that they had an offering to offer God as a gift, And even separate from that, they'd make sure that they had a sacrifice, not an offering, but a sacrifice to give God in atonement for their sins. And so there were several rituals that they would go through before entering into the temple to worship God. But Solomon warns them, hey, he tells them, be careful not to make religious your rituals, that you neglect actually worshiping God. That's what he tells them. Uh, They had the rituals down, but they were missing the reverence, is the word that we use. They were missing the worship. Uh, The reason that they were missing the reverence was because of the rituals. And it was like this vicious continual cycle that was getting in the way from them entering into the temple and truly experiencing a worshipful moment with their God. Uh, we won't go there, but in First uh, Samuel chapter number 15, God tells King Saul that obedience is better than sacrifice and hearkening to the voice of the Lord is better than offering poured out, offerings poured out before God. In other words, he's saying this, uh, it's more important that you reverence me rather than uh, going through the motions of traditionalism and rituals. Now he doesn't condemn rituals uh, and he doesn't tr- condemn traditions but he's saying I- I- I'm more concerned with whether or not you reverence me than I am concerned whether or not you're going through the motions of traditionalism and rituals. Now let's, let's set a disclaimer here real quick. When Solomon is giving this admonishment and, and he's making sure that they understand uh, not to be enamored with the rituals but to have a true worship encounter with God, where did he get those instructions or where did they get those instructions from regarding their very behavior? I'm talking about those rituals, where did they get them from? From God. They got him from Moses, right? They got them from the book of Leviticus. They got them directly from Moses, who got them directly from God. So we could say that the behavior that they were participating in was really a direct command that was received from the the law, which was received from God. So they were following in the acts that were commanded of God. So he's not saying that you shouldn't be uh, participating in this kind of behavior where you're cleaning yourself and where you're going in, making sure you have a sacrifice, making sure that you have an offering to make before God. And so Solomon wasn't concerned. Or was he correcting their behavior because that kind of behavior is a healthy behavior. It's good. It's good that you go. He's talking to the congregation of Israel. It's good that you go into the temple and that you make sure that you're clean before you go in. And it's good that you make sure that you have an offering to offer God. And it's good that you want to make sure that you have a sacrifice to give atonements for God. But he's not correcting their behavior. He's correcting their motive. He's correcting their spirit and their heart. Uh, you say, Lamar, hold on a second, how can, Lamar, how can uh, Solomon know their heart if he's not God? H- how can he know their motive? He's not able to see their inward thoughts. He's not able to see, they. he doesn't know their heart. It's a good question because Saul, uh, Excuse me, Solomon gives us a key element that manifests itself in the worship and practices of these people. And he says it in verse number two, I want us to look at it. It says, be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter Anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou art upon uh, th- and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Let thy words be few, for a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. Again, these are some powerful verses. Did you catch it? Did you catch what Solomon says? Did you catch what Solomon gave when he was talking about the worship practices of these people? And the little disclaimer that was giving off what they were actually thinking and doing within their hearts. They're doing way too much talking and not enough listening. There's way too much action going on and there's not enough reverence taking place. Uh, There's no reverence in their approach before God. They're selfish in their communication we could say. Again, he's not correcting their behavior, he's saying, hey, it's okay, it's a good thing for you to approach the temple and go through all those rituals, but your heart is not in the right place because you go and your words are not few. And he says, he says at the end of verse number three, a fool's voice is known by multitudes of words. Those are some pretty powerful verses right there. Your, your words are too many and you're not listening enough whenever you approach, uh, whenever you approach the worship in the, in the house of God. Now that's how it's manifested in Solomon's day. How is it manifested in our day today? I want you to think about that. How does it manifest itself? What are you talking about? Where your behavior trumps your motive. What about Bible reading? A trivial approach to reading the word of God. You know that every time that you crack open the word of God, you are supposed to come into his presence with an open heart and an open mind. And saying, God, show me what you want. I'm coming into your presence, man. I can testify that there's been some times where I've read my Bible because it's ritualistic and it's what's expected of me. Am I the only one? But what's your motive? If your motive behind it is to be faithful in your bi- Bible reading, that's a good behavior. Don't stop doing that, but it's not a good motive. Uh, what about this one? Corporate worship. Trivial approach to corporate r- worship. What I'm talking about is whenever you, whenever you come you, the house of God within the four walls of this church, uh, within the four, four walls of this church, whenever you come in and we corporately worship together, What's your approach in regards to the worship of God? Okay, it's, uh, it's about 10, uh, 11.05 on a Sunday morning and uh, Lamar's going to get up and we're going to sing this song and he's going to make a stand and we're going to sit, we're going to stand, we're going to sit, we're going to take an offering and it's just tradition, it's ritual, it's just routine, it's exactly what always takes place. Hey, that ought not be our motive. It ought not be that we just come into the house of God because that's what we do on Sunday mornings. It ought to be we're coming to encounter our God, our Creator, and give Him worship and adoration, and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. That ought to be our motive. What about the preached word of God and a trivial approach to the preached word of God? When pastor gets up and he preaches on Sunday mornings, is your heart open, or are you just simply saying, "All right, what time is lunch"? Every time that any, anybody, whether it's pastor, myself, a Sunday school teacher, whenever they open up the word of God, just as it is when you're reading your Bible, so it is whenever the word of God is opened up to be preached, your mouth should be silent and your ear should be open. Lord, what will thou have me to do? Ought to be your spirit. When we reverse roles with God, we promote rituals over reverence. Here's the second one. Casual commitments. Casual commitments. Uh, verse number four. It says, "When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for He hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say that. Uh, neither say thou before the angel that uh, it is. Uh, it was an error." Uh, now, wherefore should uh, God be angry at, uh, at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams in many words and uh, many words, there are also divers vanities, but fear thou God. Solomon says that when we begin to reverse roles with God, it will lead to an irreverent approach to the worship of God. But then he says this: uh, when, we, uh, when we say that, uh, excuse me, when we begin to make commitments to God, we'll disregard them. We'll have a trivial approach to the commitments and the vows that we make to God and the covenants that we make with God. Why is that? Verse number 7, because we no longer fear Him. What will lead to a trivial approach to the commitments you make to God is the fact that you don't fear Him. What's that that stemmed from? Not having the right perspective of who God is. Remember, God is in heaven and you are on the earth. When we begin to reverse roles with God, we will trivialize and disregard the commitments that we make before God. When there's a lack of a healthy fear and reverence before God, uh, it can become easy to have a casual approach to His Word and our spirit towards Him, rooted and grounded in the fact that we're no longer afraid of God. We no longer have that healthy fear of God like we ought to have. I've found that I am most responsible being pulled over. I'm most responsible behind the wheel of a vehicle when I'm merging from the shoulder after getting pulled over. Am I the only you follow my train of thought? I'm the most responsible when I'm sitting behind the wheel having just gotten pulled over for speeding, failure to commit, or failure to uh, signal. Whenever I get pulled over, I'm most responsible as soon as either A, he's issued a warning, which never happens with me, or he's issued a ticket. And as soon as we begin to merge, man, we put our seatbelt on before we even fire up the vehicle. We make sure we check our mirrors. We use our blinker. We merge slowly. We accelerate. We keep it a good five miles under the speed limit. Why? Because there's a healthy fear of the person that's behind us. Is that right? I've also found that I'm most reverent towards God when I'm coming away from a situation where God has revealed himself to me and given me a reason to fear him. I think of situations in, in my life and instances in my life where God's spoken to me and he's revealed himself to me. Camp services, revival services, man, uh, where I get on my face before God and I will commit to him something, some area of my life. Man, I think of teenagers when I think of this. Uh, this, uh, Whenever you come to camp and you're making commitments to God, you will, you will auction off your entire life, will you not? God, take it all. Whatever you want. You want my music. You want my friends. You want my family. You want my, uh, my work. You want my school. Anything you want. There's no area uh, that doesn't belong to you. God, it's all yours until We get on the bus and we go home. And then all of a sudden, Satan begins to talk to you, begins to communicate with you. I mean, that's how it is. We just got out of a revival with Brother Michael Jones. And man, as he was was preaching, no doubt, like with me, God spoke to you about some things that you need to give up. And maybe you came to the altar and you committed some things to God because God revealed himself to you. Maybe it's in an area of correction where God has had to correct and chasten you. And you come away from a situation like that and say, man, God, I promise I'm never going to go this direction again. I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to participate in that again. But how quickly those things can fade, the farther and farther we get away from those experiences. Farther and farther we get away from those experiences, we lose our reverence and lose our fear. And eventually, we have a casual approach to the very commitments, get this, that we made to God. This is I believe we ought to be men of our word. But you're talking about making commitments to God, the holy and the righteous And the omnipotent and omnipresent one, the one who created you, making commitments to God. Oh, God, surely God doesn't anticipate that I'm going to come through on that commitment. Uh, Surely he didn't expect for me to be serious about the things. Oh, yes, he is very serious. Solomon says it'd be better not to even make a commitment to God than to make a commitment so flippantly that you're casual in your approach to the commitments you've made to him. It's better if you don't even say anything to God. It's better if you don't commit to God to anything than to commit and go back. House, when Father David put it this way in Psalm 66, and verse 13, it says, I will go into thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth have spoken. Look at this. When I was in trouble. How many of you have ever made a foxhole commitment to God? You know what I mean by foxhole? God, if you will just get me out of this situation, I will God, if you will just, I will. God, if you will just come through on this situation, I will. Okay, I was in trouble. I was desperate. Surely God does not expect for me to come through. Hey, yes, he does. God expects for you to be true to your word, especially when it comes to the things you've committed in your life to him. When we get the roles reversed with God, we promote ritual over reverence. It becomes more about the traditions rather than reverencing God. When we reverse roles with God, it will lead to a casual approach to the commitments we've made to God. Number three, uh, I'm not on a hobby horse, I'm not trying to clear a spot, I'm not trying to force anything, it appears in the text, I'm going to preach it. Number three, government over God. Government over God. Look at verse number eight, it says, if thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth and there be higher than they. Verse 9, Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by many. Or, excuse me, uh, served by the field. Solomon is saying that when we begin to reverse roles with God, we shift our confidence from a sovereign God to a failing society. You hear me tonight? Whenever we reverse roles with God and we don't have that healthy perspective that we ought to have where God is in heaven and we're on earth and we no longer reverence Him and we no longer fear Him, it will lead from uh, from us depending on a sovereign and a righteous and a, a mighty God who's in control to relying on a failing society. He warns against placing our confidence in government rather than placing our confidence in God. What's interesting to note about this admonishment that Solomon is giving is who's giving it. King Solomon, Uh, King Solomon, in other words, the source of all government, the person who is the head honcho. Solomon's giving this admonishment, and what's even more ironic about this observation is that Solomon is going to go on from here, violating this very principle, and it's going to lead to the oppression of the congregation of Israel. We read about it in 1 Kings chapter number 12. It says in verse number 1, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass, when Jeroboam, the son of uh, uh, Naboth, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father... That is grievous. Father made our yoke grievous. Now, therefore, make thou the, grie- uh, the grievous service—excuse uh, me—the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which is upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. I don't have to go, time to go into it. Man, this text is a very powerful text if you go on to read about what Rehoboam does after that. And I get that Jeroboam was off base on a lot, but he was accurate in regards to this. over taxation and the oppression of, over the congregation of Israel. That's what Solomon was guilty of doing. Solomon was oppressing, and Solomon was guilty of the very thing that he's admonishing us not to do In Ecclesiastes chapter number 5. And again, that sheds some light and some insight on Solomon's observation in that Solomon knew just how corrupt and uh, oppressive the government can be. Matter of fact, he later becomes part of the problem. And so verse number 8 of our text, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. In other words, somebody else has got this figured out, and it's the person that is higher than those who are in authority. He's saying that the government is here, and God is here. There's someone in heaven, a God in heaven, who has higher authority, and who trumps the authority of the government, and he regardeth. He knows. He knows the score. uh, He knows the end from the beginning, he says in the previous uh, chapter of Ecclesiastes. Verse number nine, moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. What he's saying here is the king gets his provisions from the field. And where does the field get its provisions from? Gets it from God. In summary, Solomon is saying that when we begin to reverse roles with God, we'll look to a broken government system as our source of strength, when in reality, the government has no strength apart from God. I'll say that again. The government has no strength apart from God. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you see the oppression of the poor in our country? Oh, yeah. Do you see the oppression of the poor in our country? Do you see the violent perversion of judgment and justice in our country? Oh, man. I'm not political and I'm not going to get into politics, but this past week is testament to the fact that there's perversion and there's all sorts of, uh, 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 all sorts of discrepancy going on in Washington right now. You, can I give you a word of advice from Solomon? Marvel not at the matter. Marvel not at the matter. Why? For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be a higher than they. When we reverse roles with God, we promote ritual over reverence. When we reverse roles with God, we are casual in our approach to the commitments we make to God. And then also, when we reverse roles with God, it will lend us to trust in a failing government rather than trusting in a sovereign and a mighty God. Here's the last one. Healthy man over provider provision over provider we know this but Solomon was a very wealthy man he was one of the most wealthy men in history and and so he had riches uh, beyond compare more than anybody could ever ask for and because Solomon had accumulated so much wealth in his life he had a thing or two to say about finances and I thought that they were very good in this text I'll go over them very quickly in these next 10 verses he gives us six principles number one the more you have the more you want the more you have the more you want look at verse number 10 he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Nor he that loveth abundance with increase, this, also, this is also vanity. The more you have, the more you want. John D. Rockefeller, an Ohio native, started Standard Oil. Rockefeller was at one point the world's richest man and first ever American billionaire. Considering he was a billionaire in the early 1900s, he is still considered as the richest, one of the richest people in modern history. One day in an interview with a reporter, Rockefeller was asked this posing, this posing question. How much money is enough? His response? Just a little more. Just a little bit more. The more you have, the more you want. You're never satisfied. Here's the second one. The more you have, the more you spend. Verse number 11, it says, when goods increase... They are increased, that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The more you have, the more you spend. How many of you are familiar with Parkinson's Law? Parkinson's Law, here's what it is expenses rise to meet available income. The more you have, the more you spend. As a parent, I could admit that the more money I make, the more money I must spend. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a, a frivolous spender, but the expenses increase the more you make. Am I, am I the only one? more you make, the more you spend. When a man, this is Charles Swindle, when a man's possessions increase, it seems there is a corresponding increase in the number of parasites who live off of him. Management consultants, tax advisors, accountants, lawyers, household employees, and sponging relatives. more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you spend. Number three, the more you have, the more you worry. Verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Doesn't that seem so backwards? It says the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. The more you have, the more worrisome you become to keep what you have. The more that you have in your possession, the more consumed you are with worry and that you want to make sure that you continue to get more, which relates to the other worrisome we just talked about, but also want to make sure that you can maintain what you have. The more worrisome you become. Here's the fourth one. The more you have, the more you lose. Verse number 9. Or excuse me, verse 13. The more you have, the more you lose. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely riches kept uh, for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begateth the son, and there is nothing in his hand. That is a very confusing verse, but I believe that he's talking about risky investments here, maybe even a form of gambling, and saying that the more you wager, the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you spend. The more you have, the more you worry. The more you have, the more you lose. Here's the fifth one. The more you have, the more you leave. Verse 15. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked, shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go, and what profit hath he uh, that hath labored for the wind? Verse 17, all his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness." I know that we've stated this before, but here's what Solomon is saying. He's simply saying that you can't take anything with you whenever you pass from this life to the next. Whatever you pass off into eternity, it's not going to be gripping those dollar bills that you spent many an hour trying to earn. You take nothing from this life to the next. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the more you spend. The more you have, the more you worry. The more you have, the more you lose. The more you have, the more you leave. And here's the last one. The more you have, excuse me, the more contentment you display, the more joy you have. The more contentment you display, the more joy you have. Verse number 18, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life. Again, that ties into what we preached just a few weeks ago. It's okay to enjoy yourself. It's comely and it's good for you to enjoy the works of your labor. But then he says this, it's it's very important to understand, to enjoy the good of his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God uh, God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, very important statement here. This is the gift of God. Solomon repeats that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's trying to remind us that everything that we have and everything that we possess, all of our portion, although we might work for it, it doesn't come from us, it comes from God. Verse 20, it says, For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. verses... Solomon tells us in these verses in these few verses in the closing chapter, or excuse me, in closing verses of chapter number five, that we should and ought to rejoice in our labor and our portion for it's a gift of, of God again. And in doing so, he also warns us what happens when we get those roles reversed and find satisfaction in our provision rather than finding satisfaction in our provider. Verse 20. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Now, there's many ways that you can look at this verse, but here's how I looked at it. Uh, uh, God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Not the beneficiary's heart, but in God's heart. In other words, it's okay to enjoy your portion, because eventually your portion will be forgotten and passed away. Why? Because God gives the provision, not because of who we are, because of that, uh, the fact that we deserve it, but out of the goodness and the joy of his heart, he bestows his blessings. It's not because of who we are. It's not because of anything that we've done or the fact that we deserve it. He does it, it says, in the, at the end of uh, verse number 20, because of the goodness of his heart. And it joys him to give us those possessions, to give us those provisions. He's reiterating what he said in the previous verse, and that we ought to remember where our portions come from. Don't find satisfaction in the provision. Find satisfaction in the provider. It comes from God. We see that when we begin to assume the valor of God upon ourselves and reverse roles with God, it will manifest itself in a few different ways, promoting rituals over reverence. When you become so traditional in your behavior that you do not reverence and do not worship God, it's a manifestation of stealing God's valor. Here's the second. Having a casual approach to our commitments to God. It will lead to a lack of a healthy fear where we disregard the very commitments that we made to God. Putting our trust in government rather than God Putting our trust in a failing government system rather than putting our trust in the one who regardeth and who is higher than the highest. Finding satisfaction in our provision rather than finding satisfaction in our provider. Forgetting the fact that our provisions, they come from a source and that source is God. So what is the antidote? What is the antidote? What is the solution? Fear God. Verse 7. Have a healthy perspective of God. Remember, God is in heaven and we are on earth and fear God. Let's summarize it into one simple statement. We'll be done. Our perspective ought to be that God is higher than we are and is to be reverenced and feared, remembering who he is and what he gives us out of the goodness and the joy of his heart. That's what Solomon's saying in, in Ecclesiastes chapter number five. We ought to have a healthy perspective of where God is and who God is. He is in heaven and we are on earth. And have a healthy reverence and a healthy fear, remembering that our portions do not come from ourselves, but they, it's from God. And not because we deserve it, but because He loves us and out of the goodness. It's out of the goodness and it's out of the joy of His own heart that we receive those blessings. Therefore, let us not be guilty of reversing roles with God. Don't steal God's valor. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Pray that you'd be with us tonight. Thank you.